Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. As the weather starts to warm up, we find ourselves escaping to the great outdoors for fresh air, barbecues, outdoor sports, and other activities. Along with exploring the outdoors comes the increased likelihood that you may cross paths with a few critters, like mosquitoes or insects, or the dreaded tick. And you can't talk about ticks without talking about that infamous infectious disease that strikes fear into hearts and minds across the country, Lyme disease. Every summer, Lyme disease gains more and more notoriety. Part of this is fact. Lyme disease is the most common vector-borne disease in the U.S. There are about 30,000 cases of Lyme reported every year. The actual number of cases is potentially much higher than that. And most of the cases occur in the Northeast, New England states, and in the upper Midwest, including parts of Michigan. But part of Lyme's notoriety is also driven by an avalanche of misinformation, including bad doctors, bad diagnostic tests, and inappropriate or unapproved treatment regimens. Our mission today is to try to separate some of the Lyme disease fact from the Lyme disease fiction. Hello, and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. Today we're talking with Dr. Matt Sims about Lyme disease and ticks, something that certainly gets a lot of attention this time of year in Michigan and in other areas of the country. Dr. Sims is an infectious disease physician practicing at Beaumont in Royal Oak. He has an interest in general infectious diseases, but he also serves as the Director of Infectious Disease Research. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's great to have you here to talk about this often confusing and challenging condition. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Nick. So first, uh, you know, Matt, I know you. I guess I should qualify this conversation with that uh, disclaimer. Um, but I think for our guests, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. We're going to play the Get to Know You game. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. So uh, I'm an MD-PhD, um, and I've been here at Beaumont Royal Oak for about 12 years. Um, and in addition to seeing patients, uh, I do a lot of teaching at our medical school, and I run our research program. And our research focuses on difficult-to-treat infections. Um, we test new antibiotics. We test new diagnostics. We do things with bacteria in the lab, all sorts of things. Um, I trained uh, at Stony Brook in New York uh, under some of the best Lyme disease doctors around. These are the people who taught me about Lyme disease. Uh, because in New York, on Long Island, where Stony Brook is, there's a tremendous amount of Lyme disease. You read my mind. Uh, you mentioned that you trained in New York at Stony Brook. So, and, and you also mentioned that that's a, a Lyme disease hotspot or one of the many hotspots in the country. So have you seen a lot of cases of Lyme disease? So I've seen a ton of cases of Lyme disease back when I was a medical student, when I was a resident. There's a lot of it out there in New York. There's some of it out here in Michigan. Um, it's probably somewhere between the, you know, common estimates mm -hmm. and then what, you know, various people claim it is. Um, over just across the lake in Wisconsin, there's a tremendous amount of Lyme disease. Mm. There's not quite as much of it here in Michigan. And until recently, it really was concentrated on the west side of the state and the upper peninsula. Mm. And it's been coming more easterly and more south southerly. We will get to that. That is important stuff for sure. But I want to start back a couple steps sure. and, and sort of take it from the top. So I, I think in order to talk about Lyme disease, I want to focus on the the entry-level position, which is what is it, and what causes it, how do I get it? Sure. 
So Lyme disease is caused by a spirochete, which is a type of bacteria that looks like a spiral. That's where it gets its name. Uh, it's Borrelia burgdorferi is the particular uh, bacteria that causes it, which is named for the person who discovered it, Willie Burgdorfer. Hmm. Um, and uh, That's your trivial pursuit for the day, Trivial listener. pursuit for the day. <laughs> um, it was actually discovered by about three people almost simultaneously. Uh, but uh, Willy Bergdorfer got it to press first, and uh, so he is immortalized as a bacteria. So it is a bacterial disease. How do I get it? So it's basically the main way to get it is by a tick bite. Um, so it's carried by the deer tick, uh, which oddly enough is not usually carried by the deer. It's actually most commonly carried by the white-footed mouse, um, though it can be on deer as well. Hmm. Um, and it's a very, very small tick. It's hard to see. Um, which is one of the biggest problems with this. Um, that tick bites you, and the first thing it does is it feeds, right? So it's feeding on your blood. Um, if that tick stays in place for about 24 hours, it eventually sort of spits the blood back up. And the Lyme disease bacteria, which was in its salivary glands, is now mixed in that blood. And once it spits it back to you, that's when you can get infected. So if a tick jumps on you and bites and you catch it fast, you can't get Lyme disease from it. Very important point that I think bears repeating is that this this particular tick, I've heard it called the black-legged tick, mm -hmm. um, it, it needs to be on you for a certain amount of time in order for Lyme disease to, to really be a genuine risk. Now, I've heard numbers quoted. I've heard minimum 24 hours. I've heard as long as 48 hours. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so usually the, the most common number quoted is about 24 hours. Okay. Um, you know, it's sometimes it can go longer. Sometimes it might go a little shorter. But generally speaking, about 24 hours is what you expect before you're really at risk. Matt, let's talk a little bit for a second about the, the specific tick that causes Lyme disease, the black-legged tick or the, or the deer tick. Is there something special or unique about this particular tick? Well, you know, it's, it's a very small tick. It can be hard to see. Um, often you don't see it until it feeds because it's a soft-sided tick as opposed to a dog tick, which is very hard. Um, and so if it feeds, if it, it can swell up with blood um, like a balloon. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that's one of the things, you know, when it hasn't fed yet, um, it's, you know, about a poppy seed, the point of a pen um, in size. When it feeds, it can swell up to, you know, many times that size. Um, you know, and the other thing to know is, you know, even though the ticks are out there, not all of them are carrying Lyme disease. Good point. And there are other diseases that the deer tick can carry. There's a disease called Berbiciosis. There's a disease called Ehrlichiosis. Um, or anaplasmosis, um, you know, that can be carried. But, you know, we don't have those as much in this area. So let's, let's you know, dig into that a little bit more. If I happen to be bit by one of these black-legged ticks, if I can truly identify that it is a small tick, it's the size of a poppy seed, should I be freaking out? You shouldn't freak out. Um, you know, you should talk to a doctor, um, you know, a, a doctor who, who's reputable. Um, you know, and... Some people put up, you know, tell, say, I'm a Lyme literate doctor or, mm. you know, things like that. You know, there's no certification that says you're a Lyme literate doctor. Right. You know, some of these doctors are, you know, all sorts of doctors I've seen, you know, internists, family practice. Some of them are infectious disease. Some of them are 
all sorts of types of doctors. Um, you know, my understanding is that even if you live in an area where there is a lot of Lyme disease, a high endemic Lyme area like Wisconsin, like the, like Connecticut, like Pennsylvania, even in one an area like that, if you're bitten by a black legged tick, the chance that you're going to get Lyme disease is fairly low. So not and if, a, and if you're in an even lower endemic area, the chance is yet even lower. Absolutely. So again, how endemic it is has to do with how many ticks there are and how many of those ticks are infected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how long the tick was on you will play into whether or not you might be infected. Um, there's a lot of things to consider. But yeah, even in New York, when I had a patient who came in with a tick bite, they didn't all get Lyme disease. Sure. You know, I mean, there were people who clearly had tick bites and clearly never got Lyme disease. And there were people who got one tick bite and got Lyme disease. You know, it's, you know, again, one of the things to think about is, you know, use common sense when you're outdoors. You know, don't go traipsing off into the woods in shorts. Um, You know, spray down with bug repellent. Sure. Um, You know, and and do tick checks. You know, look on yourself check, and under places that are hard to see. You know, I've had people who had them on the back. You know, those are important things to think about to, you know, help avoid getting infected. And if I see a tick that's on me, I should, you know, do my best to, to remove it all. Yep. If it, if it hasn't bitten yet, you can just take it off. It's not, not attached. If it's attached and the head is dug in, you have to use a tweezer and carefully remove it not leaving parts of it in you because that can cause other problems. Okay. All right. Good to know. Let's talk a little bit about the, 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 the clinical side of Lyme disease. So you've, you've introduced the tick, you've introduced the bacteria. Now I'm one of those unfortunate folks who's had this tick on me for the necessary amount of time. What am I in for? Some people, nothing. It might infect and you may get almost no symptoms. Early Lyme disease is characterized by fever, uh, chills, headache, um, feeling achy, tired, you know, joint pain, that sort of thing. And commonly, this rash that they call erythema migrans or the bullseye rash. Okay. And it really does look like a bullseye. Often right in the center, you'll see sort of the bite mark. And then you'll get a red ring and then a clear ring and then a red ring. And sometimes people will have multiple bites and can be infected in multiple spots and mm-hmm. they can have multiple rashes that uh, intersect each other. Mm. Um, once you see this rash, you pretty much know it. Um, and there are some good pictures available out there on the internet and whatnot. It's not just one ring and it's not just a red spot that's a little fainter in the middle or a little darker in the middle. Um, you know, you can get that from just any old insect bite where, you know, the, you can see the bite, it, the skin is disrupted, there may be a little bleeding in the center, and then you get a red rash around it. That's, that could just be a welt. My understanding, sure, and, and I'm glad you pointed that out, because not all rashes are EM rashes right. or bullseye rashes. But in this particular erythema migrans bullseye rash, I, I've heard that this rash occurs with pretty high uh, uh, percentage in people that are infected with Lyme disease? I've heard 70 to 80% of people. Yeah, 70 80%, 75% okay. is commonly quoted. It's it's pretty common. It doesn't occur right away. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen the second the bite happens or even in the next day or so. It's usually, you know, within the next week or so. Um, and it can fade away sometimes by the time people really feel some of the other illness 
other parts of the illness. Supposing then that I'm a patient who, uh, you know, again, walking through the stages, um, I've had the tick bite, I've been exposed to the bacteria, maybe I felt a little bit lousy, I had the rash, but I ignored it because I didn't think it was a big deal. Now what? A lot of people just get better on their own. But some people will proceed to what we call late Lyme. Um, and that's where you start having more problems. Um, you can get bad headaches, mm-hmm. stiff neck, really bad joint pains. It can affect the heart. It can affect um, you know, the, the muscles. It can affect the nerves. So you can get uh, a common thing you can sometimes see is what's called Bell's palsy, though you can actually sometimes get that even earlier. And Bell's palsy is a, a palsy of the facial nerve. So you get a droop. Hmm. Um, and it can be on both sides. So you can have a droop on both sides. Hmm. Um, you know, you can get an irregular heartbeat um, if it happens to affect the heart. Um, there's uh, nerve pain, joint pain, um, all sorts of problems like this. And then sometimes people complain of memory problems. Is, is that the, uh, the so-called brain fog that you sometimes might read about? Well, you know, brain fog is a very funny term, to be honest. I've had a lot of patients come to me and tell me they have brain fog. And mm. why do they tell me they have brain fog? Because they read the term somewhere or somebody told them the term somewhere. Um, different people describe it to me in different ways. Some people it's a memory issue. Some people it's an issue being able to speak. Um, They say they have a lot of word-finding problems. Some people, it's concentration or ability to sleep um, or ability to hold a conversation. Um, You know, this brain fog is a very funny thing. And again, you know, we'll get into some of the controversies later. It's not really clear how much of that is really related to Lyme or what we'll talk about in a little bit, which is post-Lyme syndrome. This might be a good time to talk a little bit about the vagary, because you mentioned both with early Lyme and with later Lyme, not every patient reads the textbook and, and has the symptoms according to what you know a classic case might present. Where I sometimes see uh, issues is a patient may present saying, well, I had a rash. I don't remember if it was a bullseye rash. I had some vague symptoms. You know, how exactly do you parse this out in those types of situations? At that point, usually that's when I'd start to think about testing the patient for okay. Lyme. Um, and you'll read different things again on the internet about how good or bad the test is. It's not a perfect test. I'll never try to claim it's a perfect test or even close to perfect. There are people who are going to get missed by the test because for whatever reason, they don't make a good immune reaction to the Lyme. Um, and different people make different claims about, you know, how common this is or how long-lasting the immune reaction is, what happens if somebody was infected years and years ago. But the fact is there have been a lot of studies looking at people who got infected many years ago and following them, and, you know, if they made an antibody response, it usually stays up. In fact, for, you know, antibodies are divided into multiple types, but the two that most people think about is what we call the immediate antibody, which is also called IgM. That's what helps you fight off an infection. And then the memory antibody, which is IgG, and that's what helps you keep infections away. IgM is supposed to fade away over six months or so, but there's a small percentage of people who get infected by Lyme where the IgM just stays up forever. Um, It's about 10%, um, and nobody understands why, but they have done studies looking at those patients, and if you treat them appropriately, they don't have any different outcome than anybody else. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the tea leaves here, problematic disease for a couple reasons. One, the symptoms can be sometimes 
missed or, or, vague. or vague. Two, the testing that we're using is nowhere near perfect. Mm-hmm. We're doing, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, we're doing sort of a two-stage test for correct. Lyme. We're, we're doing a, a one type of an antibody test followed by a sort of a confirmatory test. Right. So first they look at the, the, the absolute level of the antibody that looks like Lyme antibodies. And then to be sure, they actually look at the antibodies themselves to make sure they're the right antibodies. So there's so the test is prone to having false positives. It can. False but, negatives. But once you do the confirmatory test, that takes away it most of the It should eliminate false the false positives. Sure, that makes sense. The other thing I think we need to talk about here is the importance of pre-test probability. Sure. And I think that this is one of the areas where I see a tremendous amount of confusion. If you live in an area where Lyme disease does not exist, it stands to reason that you probably don't have Lyme disease for that simple fact. Correct. So a lot of patients may present to my office from a county in Michigan that has no active Lyme disease, telling me that they were bit by a tick, telling me that they have vague symptoms, and perhaps they do have an abnormal Lyme test. But because their pre-test probability is so low, because they live or they work or they play in an area where Lyme disease is not, the chance that this is actually Lyme disease is virtually zero. All things being equal, yes, there are caveats to that, you know. People don't stay in one place constantly. Maybe they, I had a patient who lived in Huntington Woods once who had definite Lyme disease. And they had seen a doctor um, and who told them, you know, they, like the day they were bitten by a bug in their garden. And they saw a doctor and they had had a headache. And the doctor's like, this can't be Lyme. It's too fast. And um, the symptoms are too fast to be from that bug bite. And, um, you know, it's not... We don't have Lyme in Huntington Woods. This was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Then she went off traveling um, and um, developed the Bell's palsy. Um, so um, ended up with me after she had been treated and just want to know, did she have to do anything else? And how could they have missed this? And when I talked to her and listened to her, I said, you know, they were right. It wasn't from that bug bite. And the fact that you had Lyme is sort of incidental. And I said... Given the timing, and I kind of counted back, I said, you probably got infected, and I picked the date that I thought she got infected. I said, where were you then? She said, no, no, I was here, I was here. And then she kind of pulled out her calendar and looked and said, oh, you know what? I was in an area where they have a lot of Lyme disease out (laughs) on the East Coast. So Just that one little detail. You know, so (laughs) she got it, absolutely, but she picked it up somewhere else. So you got to be careful when you say just because you live in a place because people travel. Fair point, man. You know, Fair and point. ticks travel. Like, you know, if somebody came to visit them with a dog that happened to have a tick on it, now it's not the dog tick that carries Lyme, but, you know, deer ticks can get on to dogs as well. Um, you know, there's, there's ways that, you know, even if they're in a complete, you know. So if, if the, even if the pretest probability was low and they had appropriate symptoms and the test you know, was positive, I probably, you know, in that case would consider it real. A positive test is easier to deal with than a negative test when somebody says, I've been told I have Lyme disease, I've got all these symptoms that I read about on the internet, and I feel lousy, and I have to be treated for Lyme disease. And I know that, you know, the treatments aren't what you read in the textbooks, you know, so it, it, you get those difficulties. The negative test is worse than the positive test to me. This is a good 
chance to talk a little bit more about treatment. I think, uh, you know, you, you separated earlier uh, early Lyme from late Lyme. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about almost everything as it pertains to clinical disease. Now is the time to talk about treatment. So what is the treatment for Lyme? And can you sort of break it down, you know, if I catch it early versus if I don't catch it until later? There are two antibiotics that we really use for Lyme disease. Um, one of them is doxycycline. It's uh, a very common uh, antibiotic uh, related to tetracycline, which most people know for acne. Um, doxycycline is taken twice a day, and you take it for anywhere between 10 and 21 days is sort of the recommended. Um, I usually treat for 14. Um, and, um, you know, it works. It works pretty well. Um, the other treatment that we often use is ceftriaxone, which is an IV medication, um, different class of antibiotics. It's closely related to penicillin. Um, but um, we tend to use that more for when people have Lyme arthritis or Lyme carditis or neurological Lyme disease because it, it gets in in higher concentrations. It penetrates the blood-brain barrier. You know, So it, if you're having neurological symptoms, it gets in, whereas doxycycline might not. Roughly same duration of treatment? Um, often for that, you know, for, we go up to 28 days, hmm. but usually no longer. Now, there are people out there who claim you need to treat for years or forever. Um, they add other antibiotics that have never been shown to have activity against Lyme disease for various reasons. Um, so it becomes difficult. You know, all of this information is out there on the Internet, hmm. um, and, you know, there are people who claim to know better. You're reading my mind again. So, uh, you know, this is probably the perfect time to segue into the more controversial aspects of Lyme. So you and I both are infectious disease doctors, and we can talk about Lyme disease, you know, at cocktail parties and at places and probably bore the world to tears with our Lyme disease conversations. But I think that a lot of this is really important for people to know about. Lyme is a controversial disease. It is. And and I guess what I want the listeners to understand is because many people out there might be thinking, why? It's a bacterial disease. It's It, it has a clear symptomatology. It has a, a clear epidemiology. What's the controversy? So a lot of the controversy comes because there's, there's an entity that um, we call post-Lyme syndrome. Um, but you'll often hear it called chronic Lyme disease, right? There hasn't been a lot of really solid data to say that Lyme disease can become a chronic infection. Mm. You know, once you treat it, it still sits around, it hides. I've heard people tell me it turns invisible, it forms cysts, it all sorts of things that you know keep it from being eliminated by the treatment. Um, the fact is, there is something called post Lyme syndrome, and that's that people who get treated often will sort of have a prolonged course of symptoms following it. Mm. Um, and those symptoms, you know, often are a little nonspecific. Aches, pains, you know, my thoughts aren't quite right, those sort of things. Now, fatigue, fatigue is a big one. Mm. Um, you know, in our modern world with everybody on the go and active and whatnot, fatigue is a common symptom for a lot of people. Fatigue is a nightmare symptom. because It be- is. Because, uh, you know, a lot of patients may present and say, well, I'm tired, um, and what do I have? I think when you really start to explore that and parse that out, it could fan you out in a million different directions, right? right? But there are, you know, people out there who, like, jump to Lyme disease mm. as, the, as the diagnosis. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, and I tell this to my patients, 
when I get a patient who's got all these funny symptoms, feels lousy, you know, is like I had a normal life and now I can't get out of my bed. Um, or I had a normal life and now I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. You know, I, f- I feel for these patients. Mm. You know, they are, you know, people, some people tell them, oh, you know, it's all in your head. Or, you know, I never, I never tell one of these patients it's all in their head. There's something wrong, right? But the worst thing you can do is, is label them with a diagnosis you can't prove um, and that you can't test. Good point. Um, because then you stop looking. Correct. And, and you owe it to them, I think, to, to explore every, right. every organic possibility that you could be Absolutely. looking at. If someone presents with neurologic symptoms, Lyme could be the answer, but let's look at these other 15 I've things I've diagnosed first. at least four people with uh, multiple sclerosis who sure. thought they had Lyme disease. I've diagnosed people with you know, other problems. I've diagnosed a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis who were told they had Lyme disease. Um, and then there are patients I haven't been able to find a diagnosis. Um, the problem with some of these, you know, when one of these patients come to me, they want me to tell them two things. They want me to say, I know what's wrong with you, and I know how to fix it. That's what everybody wants, yeah. and I get it. Um, you know, if I were in that situation, that's what I would want. And unfortunately, it's really easy for them to listen to Somebody who tells them they know what's wrong with them and I, they know how to fix it, whether or not they really do. Um, you know, you're getting into something that I think is important to also talk about, and that is the more nefarious side of, of Lyme. Uh, and there, it seems to me that there is a whole industry out there that's devoted to diagnosing and treating people for Lyme. If you Google Lyme disease, your first several hits are probably going to have something to do with, with this, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And, and I'm, what I'm talking about is um, bad testing or unapproved testing. I'm talking about treatments that are unapproved. I'm talking about other questionable medical practices. Can you explore that for just a minute? Sure. So, you know, it's a difficult area um, because you, it's hard to put yourself in the mind of those doctors or other practitioners who are doing it. Um, it's not all doctors. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I, I like to say there are, there are three kinds of doctors in general who treat Lyme disease. Um, they're the honest doctors. They tell you, you know, here's what the guidelines say. Here's what we really know. Here's what we don't know. Um, and they'll lay it all out, talk to the patient, try to work with the patient um, as best as possible. But in general, we'll follow you know, the guidelines, they may go a little outside, say, you know what, the guidelines say if you've had this treatment and it didn't work, it's probably not, but we'll try it again. Or, you know, we'll try, you know, we'll, you got doxycycline, we'll try ceftriaxone, even though, you know, there's no real reason to here. They might do things like that. I've done things like that on occasion. Hmm. Um, then there's the doctors I call the true believers, you know, and, and my hope is that most of the people out there who do what, you know, the kind of things you said, non-standard this, non-standard that, um, are true believers. They really think they understand something about Lyme disease that is, you know, going to help their patients that the rest of us just aren't seeing or don't understand or haven't been able to prove. And, you know, they're really trying to help their patients. I've known several docs who I know are true believers. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's some who, you know, for lack of a better word, are predators. They're, you know, they're 
preying off these patients, and it's not just in Lyme. You get that in cancer. You get that in all sorts of diseases. You know, if it's Absolutely. difficult to treat disease or difficult to diagnose disease, you'll find people out there, and you'll hear about it on the news when they catch them. Yeah. You know? Um, so there are people out there. The problem is separating who's who. Yeah. And it, it's not easy for me to do. It's not easy for a patient to do. Well, so let's let's throw out some pearls here for, for people who might be listening right now. For all I know, someone's listening right now that may think that they have Lyme disease. Where, sure. You know, where would you send a person to get the most reputable, credible information out there? You know, the CDC website has really good information. Um, that's probably where I would start. Okay. That's a good answer. I, I always point people to the to the Center for Disease Control. I think that they give great information. Mm-hmm. They have a very accessible website. Um, they do. I've, I've often referenced their material for, for patients with Lyme. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, Matt. Sure. Um, I want to kind of synthesize everything that we talked about today. So if I'm a person who spends a lot of time outside, uh, and suppose I live in an area where there's known to be Lyme disease, like mm-hmm. certain parts of Michigan or Pennsylvania or sure. wherever I'm at, uh, and I find a tick. I'm out mm-hmm. playing in the weeds, and I find a tick on my leg. Walk me through what I should do next. Okay. So if the tick's not dug in, just take it off and you're done. Um, because if it hasn't bitten you or if it's not attached, you can't get Lyme just because it's crawling on you. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's bitten you, so it's got to be removed carefully. You use a tweezer you grasp it by the head. You don't want to leave the head in, right? And a doctor can help you take it out or an urgent care, you know, if you don't want to do it yourself. Um, if that tick is saved, it can be brought to, um, like, our microbiology lab can identify them. I just did this for somebody recently. They, uh, another doctor I know called me up, said, I have a family member who's been bitten by a tick. We were able to save the tick. I said, okay, you know what? Bring it to me. We'll get it to the micro lab. And it turned out to be a dog tick, hmm. you know, but it was a small dog tick. Crisis averted. Crisis averted. You know, dog ticks carry other things, but they don't carry Lyme. Hmm. Um, so if you have the tick, um, identifying it can sometimes just eliminate the problem. Should I be running to my doctor for an antibiotic prescription at this point? Not yet. Um, so I will say that back in New York, when we could confirm a tick bite and it was in for an unknown, we would treat. So it takes a little while for the test to turn positive. It takes a couple of weeks often because it, you have to develop antibodies. So in a highly endemic area, we usually just treat first. Now, this part of Michigan around Royal Oak is not highly not endemic. Not highly endemic area, um, yes. Other parts of Michigan are more endemic. Um, sure. Wisconsin is highly endemic. Parts of New York are highly endemic. Connecticut, Massachusetts, sure. you know. So going back to that pretest probability right. question that if we asked If the pretest earlier. probability is high, you don't wait. Because the faster you treat, if you treat early enough, you know, you may never, maybe you didn't really have it. Or it could be a single but, dose. You know, you, know, you yeah. treat early enough and, uh, and, you know, they'll never even make the antibodies. Very good point. And then they won't have any kind of immune reactions. Very good point. Matt, I want to thank you for coming on. I think that's about all the time we have for today. Um, I want to thank Dr. Matt Sims for being my guest. Matt, great conversation. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me, Nick. And before we leave, I want to remind you to share any questions you might have with our email address, which is podcast at beaumont.org. On a future episode, Dr. Asha Shah Jahan and I will answer our mailbag. I leave you today with this healthy thought. Lyme disease is a true clinical entity. It's a real bacterial disease that can be properly diagnosed and treated, but it can also be a challenging and vague disease. 
Symptoms are not always obvious and the diagnostic testing is far from perfect. And to make matters worse, there's a lot of misinformation out there about Lyme disease that seems to add to the confusion. Beware of providers who promise cures with certain unapproved or expensive treatments. When in doubt, don't be afraid to get a second opinion from a reputable, credible source, such as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention or from a knowledgeable infectious disease doctor. Thank you.